Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Patient. Patient. As in, the Fed will be patient as we see how the economy evolves. Those sweet words from Fed Chair Jerome Powell were all we needed to ignite a rally that almost no one saw coming. Dow surging 747 points, S&P soaring 3.43%, NASDAQ pole vaulting more than 4%. This is literally what we've been begging for on this show since the first week of October. Begging. Ever since Powell outlined his rash, dogmatic view on the need for four more robo-rate increases, I've asked repeatedly that it not be done, that the Fed simply tighten one more time in December and then wait and see what the data tells us. Somehow this was regarded by many commentators as a radical position. Radical. How about reasoned? Bizarrely, no matter what I said about the weakening data, Powell could not be shaken from the idea that the economy was red hot and we needed more inflexible rate hikes. He was inflexible. Like many people, I began to feel that Powell wasn't targeting some sort of weird model. He was targeting you. He was targeting you. That's right. Targeting employment itself, trying to drive down demand for workers like you, create some slack in the labor market for you. Yeah, slack. That's what you were. I wanted you to be slack. But when Powell spoke today, he seemed to recognize that while employment is robust, and we just got an employment number that was terrific, more than 300,000 jobs added, the fact alone does not mean the Fed needs to tighten. Nor does 3% and change wage inflation mean that we're entering some kind of Weimar Republic situation where all we, we all be paying for bread with wheelbarrows full of $100 Deutschmarks. The result, we shook off one of the shackles that has bedeviled this market since October, and it left us with the possibility of a save for 2019, just when so many investors had already written off the whole year, the whole year after the first week of trading. You heard it. So did I. Today is a day to celebrate the flexibility and the terrific pivot that Jay Powell took this morning. Takes a lot of guts to go from saying we need these rate hikes no matter what, or maybe even more than we thought in 2019, to saying this. We're listening carefully to that. We're listening with, you know, sensitively to the message that that markets are sending. I like that. I like that. It contradicted the very dubious words that the Uber hawk Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester told CNBC this morning when she said that the data would suggest one or, or two more rate hikes. But then again, maybe we should see the data. 
can't make this stuff up. Messi's supposed to be real smart. But that argument makes no sense whatsoever. You know what we call that? We call that circular reasoning. But with these tempered, thoughtful comments from Powell, we are now in terra firma. If the economy gets hot, we genuinely deserve more rate hikes. I ain't no negative rate hike guy. I just want it to be in sync with the economy. If it gets cooler, Fed holds off. You know what that's called? Rationality. And I applaud rationality. I'm glad pals invoke it. Something that happens all too infrequently in Washington. Three cheers for pal. With that in mind, what's on tap for next week? Okay, here we go. First on Monday, the trade talks restart in Beijing, and they're happening at exactly the same time as China seems to be, I think, panicking. Cutting reserve requirements spur more lending. But to what avail? Uh, more vacant apartments? Uh, more factories to make things that won't be able to be sold in America anymore? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, what are they going to do with that $218 billion in extra spending uh, now that you can't really jump it on us? However, if the Chinese government really wants to jumpstart their economy, you know what they should do? They should kind of deal with President Trump, give U.S. companies permission to operate in China without domestic partners. They need to make some concrete commitments to, let's say, American Express or Visa or MasterCard come in without these bogus shackles. They need to say that they embrace all the efforts made by Apple to keep people employed in the PRC. They need to say that they'll open factories here in the United States. And China needs to agree to stronger intellectual property protection to the point where they'll actually prosecute people who habitually steal our best ideas. Hey, maybe make it a capital crime. I don't believe in the death penalty for theft. But then again, I don't run a communist dictatorship. Monday's also the kickoff of the most important healthcare conference of the year, the J.P. Morgan Confab in San Francisco. We will be there. I think it's going to be an amazing look at, what, at what's happening in pharma. This is real immersion, people. This conference is so important that I think Bristol Myers and Celgene had them merge before it happened. By the way, I like that deal. Uh, if they were going to preserve the credibility. See the stocks today? Like I said yesterday, I said, you know, it, it, people are so negative. It, it did well today. Now, Walgreens is the first big name that we'll be interested in. I want to know how this drugstore chain plans to stay relevant in a year where everyone believes Amazon can destroy them. I keep hearing all of these regional Fed officials that say they're in touch with business in their area saying great things. Well, we're in touch with a lot of people here who may have money. They aren't nearly as sanguine as the people the Fed heads seem to be talking to. On Tuesday, well, we'll do a little of this uh, kind of you know, survey stuff. We're going to get the NFI, NFIB Small Business Optimism Index numbers, and I bet they'll show a decided downturn because small business is going to have its credit squeezed as the banks are making just a tiny bit more than they were paying out in CDs. That's an unhealthy situation. Patients will be warned. Again, I can't believe how great Powell was today. Hey, listen, when I dump on him, and it's tough, but when he does a good thing, I like to praise him. Wednesday morning, we are from Constellation Brands, STZ. I have to tell you, this stock has become one of the nastiest out there because of concerns about the slowing sales of Modelo and Corona. Now, that's obviously not looking at the numbers here, but maybe this is too small a sample. Uh, as well as the billions of dollars they borrowed to buy that huge stake in canopy growth, the only Canadian cannabis company with the capital to go for the jugular. Constellation stock has fallen from $229 to 167 on these sales worries. If they don't materialize, you know what? <laughs> that was Invisible Inc. $10 game. We have two home builders reporting for duty, Lennar before the open and KB Home after the close. I think they'll try to put a good fo- face on things, but the truth is the home builders are a major reason why Powell chose patience over imprudence today. I believe their stock's actually bouncing any good news uh, uh, because Powell's speech today was such a game changer. Remember, context, 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 game change. Keep an eye also on Home Depot. I know it's up today, but they do have a lot more to move. Thank you, Stephanie Link, for putting this in my head. Uh, it might be worth buying on any positive news for the home builders. 
After the close, we get results from Bed Bath & Beyond. This is a company that's been in Amazon sites for ages. When people talk about businesses that will blink and start closing underperforming stores by the boatload, they're thinking about Bed Bath, not just Sears. I wish they had a game plan besides buying back stock. It's been the worst buyback in the history of my following stocks, basically shoveling money into a raging fire inside a chimney. <laughs> it's kind of like the guy with gut junk, you know. Okay. Delta Airlines pre-announced some numbers yesterday that scared the heck out of people. That was wrong. I don't believe they intended it to be nearly as negative as it came across. I bet they tell a much better story when they do the actual report on Thursday. You should buy some ahead of the quarter. The airline stocks have become ridiculously cheap again, and, and the lower jet fuel makes them much too cheap to, uh, to avoid. Uh, Delta's a good one to pick up. I've been actually doing some work on JetBlue. Kind of interesting. Finally, on Friday, we get our consumer price index. You know, I believe it will actually be negative. And once again, we will praise Jay Powell for recognizing that we have something special going on in this country. Growth without inflation that's producing jobs galore for people who had previously been thought to be unemployable and also putting an end to the lost decade of real wage. We, we you know, end of a lost decade where people made no more money than when it started. I call that actual wage declines. I'm glad that's over. The bottom line, congratulations to you, Jay Powell. You recognize the rational nature of waiting, the prudence of patience, and the need to try to keep a business cycle alive that many investors had already written off and left for dead. And to everyone else, here's my hope. You can finally buy stocks again without fighting the Fed. Daniel in Ohio. Daniel! Hey, Jim. Dan from Cleveland, Ohio. Hey, my brother. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Good, thanks. All right, I'm calling in about Ford Motor Company stock today. I see it's at a five-year low currently. They also just marked their F-Series truck as best-selling in America again 42 years now. Right. I also see it looks like today they just released a recall on several of their vehicles. Yes. Now, as a young investor, could this possibly be a good entry point for a possible long-term value stock that also pays a dividend? see, for a young investor, I want you to go for growth. I want you to go for stocks that could be that where it could go to hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars. Ford's not going to do that. You need to think bigger. You need to remember you got your whole life ahead of you. Go for something like a biotech stock that we discover next week, maybe in J.P. Morgan's healthcare conference. Listen for one of those or or, or go for something that's a cloud based company. But Ford is doesn't have the the aggressive nature of what I'm looking for. Brian and Washington, Brian. Booyah! How's it going, Jim? Fabulous. How about you? Excellent. Thanks for having me. I love your show. Oh, thanks a lot, buddy. Well, beyond that, I'm sorry. Yeah, my question today is about uh, Square or SquarePay. I know they've got a new uh, CFO uh, down about 40% off of their highs from last year. Where do you see this thing going in 2019? And how much of your charitable trust do you put towards this thing? Well, I, not in Square. I, look, I was, was I a huge fan of Sarah Fryer. Look, she's at Nextdoor, which is a, a product that we use at home. It's terrific. i got to get to know the new Square CFO. I would love to meet with the Square people because I think Square does a darn good job. But then again, in full disclosure, we're a client of Square, and that's one of the reasons why I like them so much. Congrats, Mr. Powell. Thanks for recognizing what you needed to do to keep the cycle alive. And I'm not being cynical. I'm proud of you. You know, you made some mistakes. You're back. Man Money Tonight, 
We're two years into the Trump economy, major reset last quarter. So where do stocks really stand now? And, and maybe it's time to be a little less negative. I'm going to give you my take. Then, new year, new buys. I'm taking a look at the best and worst of the Dow in 2018, telling you which stocks are still buys in 2019 and why it's so refreshing to find some good stocks at the bottom. And I'm going out to San Francisco next week for J.P. Morgan's annual healthcare conference. So tonight, I'm getting a preview of what to expect from the managing director, Lisa Gill herself. 19 years doing this one. You do not want to miss it. And you know I don't put analysts on the show. Stick with Graver. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com WEC. This market is so volatile. It can really make your head spin. One day we're in free fall. The next day we get an incredibly bullish employment report, along with some very positive commentary from Fed Chief, Chief Jay Powell. And suddenly we're rebounding like nobody's business. That was easy. The averages have been seesawing like crazy, which is why tonight I want to use this moment of strength to take stock of where we are right now. See, this move is so big, we can't just do a little game plan and ignore it. we got to put this one in context. You need the context. Specifically, let's talk about this whole Trump era. Like it or not, this president has done more than any of his predecessors to associate the stock market with his administration. He likes it. It's his Nielsen's. So where do we stand two years into the Trump economy? By the end of last year, the S&P 500 was up 17% from the election in 2016, okay? Up 10% from Trump's inauguration in January of 2017. However, it had come down dramatically from its highs by that point. The Trump rally got derailed by two different things. Well, first, it got derailed by Trump himself in the form of the trade war with China. Remember, I think he's just fighting back. They've been fighting us forever. Which, and I support him even as it's bad for business in the short term. And then it was derailed by a hawkish Federal Reserve that wanted to raise interest rates too aggressively around the clock. Uh, Totally inflexible. It was a one-two punch, and it quickly turned the Trump rally into the Trump slump. But here's the thing about these two problems, okay? They're both man-made. Everything here is man-made, okay? That's important. Keep that in mind. Because anything that's man-made can be unmade. And that's what's happening. That's what happened Day. When Jerome Powell said that he'd be patient about raising interest rates, a big change from the previous plan for two, at least two more hikes this year, no matter what, he gave this market a huge and justifiable boost, the Powell pop. Suddenly, the biggest negative had been removed. And remember, I think that the Fed is responsible for a lot of this, okay? The October 3rd outburst by uh, Jerome Powell in an imprudent way. And on Monday, we have the trade talks with China. 
Who knows? Maybe we get some progress there, too. I think the Chinese had better be ready for some representatives who know we have the stronger hand these days because this government is not owned by companies that want big earnings growth from the Chinese economy. And because if Powell actually is no longer at war with the U.S. economy, we're in stronger footing when we go to China. I think the Chinese are ready to do. I do. Moreover, I think they're ready to cave. Their economy is not teetering, but the trajectory is alarming for any government, even a communist dictatorship. How would the situation look if we no longer need to fight the twin headwinds of the Fed and the trade war? One word. Wow. Remember back in January of 2018 when the conventional wisdom on Wall Street was that we were in the midst of the fabulous Trump rally? One that started when the most pro-business presidential candidate in modern history scored a surprise victory in November 2016? Between the huge corporate tax cut and the White House's aggressive focus on deregulation, the Trump era did seem like nirvana for the stock market. We had a roaring economy that was accelerating thanks to a very business-friendly administration. At the same time, we were enjoying tremendous worldwide expansion. Whatever your politics might be in January of 2018, it sure seemed... Crystal clear, okay, crystal clear that Trump was a real boon to your 401k or IRA. Honestly, it was kind of like something out of Das Kapital. I studied that when I was in college. Karl Marx would tell you that a government run by the bourgeoisie is going to benefit the bourgeoisie. In fact, something almost unprecedented was happening. We had a rapidly growing economy without that, without much in the way of inflation. That allowed the Federal Reserve to hold off on tightening too uh, aggressively. Remember, this is the context I'm giving you. For stockpickers, uh, the first year of the Trump administration, it was the promised land. From the night of the election to the peak back on September 21st, the S&P 500 gave you a monster 38% gain. Pretty much anyone who could afford to invest in the market was winning. Hey, maybe they got tired of winning. More accurately, the Federal Reserve got tired of you winning. Fast forward to yesterday before Jerome Powell's attitude adjustment and sentiment about the stock market was really pretty dismal. It was a total switcheroonie McFadden, though, that caught so many hedge funds leaning the wrong way and so many sellers feeling downright stupid. Now, by now, you know the litany. Early last year, the president started cracking down on unfair Chinese trade practices, and this trade skirmish has really blown into a full-fledged trade war. I think the Chinese communists are really bad, rapacious bullies. And I think the tariffs are totally justified. But there's no denying that this kind of thing is bad for business, at least in the short term. If we get a favorable trade deal with the Chinese that stops their businesses from forcing American companies into joint ventures and then looting their technology, I am betting it will be worth it and we can actually have another leg up. For now, though, the tariffs hurt. All sorts of cheap stuff from the People's Republic is suddenly 10% more expensive. And meanwhile, China has begun to scorn American products. Just look at Apple's hideous shortfall. They're doing really, really well uh, just about everywhere in the world except in China and maybe India. But in China, the sudden precipitous slowdown, well, let's just say it raises eyebrows. Remember, we're talking about communist China here. If the party gently suggests that their citizens should buy homegrown smartphones, you don't want to be the guy who's shelling out money for the iPhone. Maybe you're concerned that the Chinese state doesn't encourage anything but Huawei phones, even though buying a Huawei over an Apple, I think, is like picking a stance belt leisure suit over a Brioni or a Xenia. Two super fancy Italian clothiers. Worst of all, as I mentioned many times, in October, Fed Chief Jay Powell came out and warned us that he was planning to aggressively raise interest rates, something that caused a huge panic in the stock market that we're trying to recover from. Just as Powell was telling us the business was, was really scorching and that we needed maybe four tightings to cool it down, we started seeing signs that the economy was slowing. Real weakness in housing, autos, construction, chemicals, all the industries that tend to peak first. Between the cluelessness of the Fed, the president's trade war, and the government shutdown, 
the market just kept getting slammed from its highs in September to its intraday nadir on December 26th. The S&P had plunged more than 20%, and that's that bear territory you always keep hearing about, okay? Of course, since then, we've been bouncing, including today's move, aided by a strong employment number and a Fed chairman who suddenly has seen the light when it comes to what's really happening in the economy. The S&P is now up nearly 8% from those boxing day lows. That may not sound like much, but consider, at the lows last week, the market was up nearly 3.3%. 3.3% from President Trump's inauguration, less than 10% from his election. It was likely to roll back the entire Trump rally. I think that's crazy. But at the same time, you know, everybody was worried about a hostile Federal Reserve. Fed doesn't, uh, doesn't listen to the president. Now, after today, gratefully and thankfully, we can take that off the table. And I bet a ton of money actually flows back into the market, given that pals come around. Why wait until it's up another 5% will be, I think, the zeitgeist, prevailing zeitgeist. Now, I think we can go back to trying to figure out this, value, this market in the old-fashioned way. I think we're going to start thinking about how to value the earnings. While some will not be so hot, notably ones can, uh, not constrained by China, uh, because the others could be viewed positively through a prism of lower rates that make them more palatable. Or to put it another way, again, in context, the end of the cycle chatter might be just that. If we get a trade deal and Powell is true to, the word, to his word, hence this amazing outburst of buying, a fabulous employment number, growth with no inflation, and a Fed that gets it. The cycle might live again. You're going to hear that talk next week, my prediction. Thanks to the hideous fourth quarter sell-off, the stock market has lagged behind its historical average performance during the first two years of the Trump era. To me, that means we should have more upside. The companies in the S&P 500 saw their earnings growth by 17% in 2017, now at 27% in 2018. Wall Street expects high single-digit growth this year. Although with the Fed uh, relenting, these estimates might need to go higher. However you slice it, the 10% gain since Trump's inauguration, I do not think captures the fabulous earnings growth we've seen over the same period. A move higher is justified. Here's the bottom line. Remember those terrific days of the Trump rally when the market couldn't stop roaring higher? I'm not saying they're back, but I do think the Fed's new stance means the slump ran its course on December 24th, the day before Christmas. And today might not be the last day where we roar higher. Stick with me. why Fed Chief Jerome Powell finally did the right thing today, spurring a phenomenal run after he told us he'd exercise some patience when it comes to rising interest, raising interest rates. I've been telling you that the Fed would eventually blink. We just didn't know when. How did I know? Simple. I do the homework. And the homework was painting a much bleaker picture than what we were hearing from the Fed. Basically, they got slapped in the face by reality. Now, Powell says he's listening carefully to the market. So what are the markets really saying? What was I paying attention to? What should he pay attention to? Consider the five best and worst performing stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial Average during the fourth quarter. The quarter that began with Powell lowering the boom on the market when he suggested the Fed might need to overshoot with its rate hikes to cool down a red-hot economy. The biggest winner in the Dow during the fourth quarter, well, how telling is this? This is what Powell needed to listen to. It's Procter & Gamble. P&G up 10%, and when Procter's the best performer, you know something's wrong with that economy. This is a classic slowdown stock. Procter's very little economic sensitivity, even in a recession. You're going to keep buying shampoo and razor blades, right? 
Don't get me wrong, this is a high-quality company. And ever since Nelson Peltz, the big-time activist investor, won his proxy fight and landed himself a seat on the board, Proctor's gotten religion when it comes to self-improvement. Management realized that they needed to start taking market share while growing revenue, and that is just what they did the last quarter. Meanwhile, Proctor's raw costs... They are coming down thanks to much lower oil prices. They use tons of petroleum to make the plastic packaging. And the company's beginning to figure out how to compete better in emerging markets. Mainly, Procter led the pack, though, because it's a recession play, Mr. Powell. Throw in the stock's 3.1% yield. Remember, treasuries are going down in interest rate. And it's fabulous balance sheet. And this is exactly the kind of stock you want to own if you're concerned about a slowing economy. And after today's terrific jobs number, well, I don't know. You could probably be less concerned, but you could at least understand why, if you're J-Pal, you say, uh-oh, P&G. Next up, well, another uh-oh. I think Merck can repeat its 8% gain going forward. Why? Because their main competitor in the oncology business, Bristol-Myers, just shelled out $74 billion to buy Celgene. And they never would have done something so radical if Merck weren't winning some head-to-head trials against them. Yet Merck's blockbuster anti-cancer drug, Keytruda, is taking share, taking names. Plus, Merck sports a 2.9% yield here. It's got a rock-solid balance sheet. And just like Procter & Gamble, it's a fabulous slowdown stock. You have my blessing to still buy this into weakness, even though we have the pal pal rally. Third, there's McDonald's up 6% in the fourth quarter. In my view, I'm loving it. I believe McDonald's is about to become a terrific technology company now that CEO Steve Easterbrook can pick and choose what works from locations all around the world. It's like a giant laboratory for him. Before this guy took the reins, McDonald's struggled because his fate is in the hands of the franchisees. Easterbrook's won them over. How can he not? He's a compelling figure. Oh, and once again, this is exactly the kind of company that can thrive in a softer economy. So you now keep thinking about Pal. Keep thinking about Pal. He should have been thinking, uh-oh, P&G, uh-oh, Merck, and uh-oh, McDonald's. But this was the real tell. Verizon. Okay, I personally am tired of Verizon going higher. It gained 5% last quarter. It's still down 5% from its highs. I bet it's got more upside. Verizon's got a 4.3% dividend yield. In this kind of environment, I expect the stock to rally until the yield shrinks to, say, 3.3%. Think of this as a one-stop shop for investors who want a recession-proof equity with zero China exposure. I still think it's a buy. Of the 30 stocks in the Dow, only one more rallied in the fourth quarter. That was Coca-Cola. It's up 2.5%. I'd like to give the world a Coke. Because it's a cheap stock, and this stock's hardly ever cheap. That shouldn't have been hit at all in the last few weeks. With a 3.3% yield, accelerating growth, youthful, invigorated leader, and CEO James Quincy, Coca-Cola is practically the perfect stock for this environment. Quincy's a real smart guy. He's so right for the job. Okay, now how about the five biggest losers in the Dow last quarter? Well, Apple's the worst, down 30%. Uh, what hasn't been said about Apple, it still needs to be said. Uh, how about the fact that its products are the envy of the world? And even the people who bash the stock tend to do it via their iPhones. Is Apple right right here? Is the stock right? No. It has China issues. It has so-called innovation issues, emphasis on so-called. It has price point issues. But despite all of that, the company has something great going for it. It's got a customer-loving satisfaction ratio that's centered on its ecosystem. It's almost impossible to divorce itself from, especially once you're trapped in it or loving it, as I do. Hey, Apple to watch. Supply constraint. Earbuds, which were universally dissed at first, but are now one of Apple's most popular items. Remember, Apple's a consumer products technology company with a rapidly growing service revenue stream. The razor blades to the iPhone's razor. And they don't get enough respect for this business. Oh, and, and you uh, naysayers who think that Apple isn't innovative, other than Amazon, I want you to do something this weekend. Maybe you can get back to me on Monday. I want you to name me three or four companies that are doing anything electrifying, anything. Hey, I'm going to name one. 
Yeah, right? Still, that negative pre-announcement means that you need to wait at least 30 days before you buy the stock because no company bothers to pre-announce to the downside if it believes that things are about to get better. Talk to me in a month, will you? Second worst, oh, man. I mean, the stocks are a lot. Goldman Sachs. This one's just become ridiculous already. It's off more than 25% last quarter. That's crazy. This thing is universally loathed. I scream, you scream. We all scream about how much we hate Goldman Sachs. I think even my kids hate Goldman Sachs. The truth, though, is that Goldman's one of the greatest wealth creators of all time. There's a ton of smart people right there right now, and there have been through the doors. The franchise is unassailable, though the Malaysian scandal still needs to run its course, and that is an embarrassment. And I think that anyone who touched that thing should be fired, if, uh, well, except for the ones who have already been prosecuted. Goldman's a finance company, and those don't do well right now because no one even knows what tangible book value means these days, which is what you would get if you liquidated the business and returned all the money to shareholders. Right now, you get more, uh, get about 12 bucks more than the stock currently sells for. If they close the doors, I think it's incredibly cheaper. Uh, you need to buy it and then be patient. The Malaysian nightmare, it will eventually end. And again, I emphasize that was horrendous. Uh, but I think that you'll wish you owned some golden slacks when it's done. Third, there's IBM down nearly 25%. This one's tough. How, how about we declare IBM to be a 5.4% yielding bond with warrants that give you upside if the Red Hat deal works out as planned? I don't know how else to put it. IBM is basically a good bond. And you know what? I like bonds in a world where the 10-year yields a little bit more than 2.6%. Look, for years, buying IBM has been a mistake. There's no doubt about that. But maybe the Red Hat acquisition can turn things around. My view, for now, on the fence. Next, I think another downrightly ridiculous stock that everyone hates this year so much, United Technologies. First, fourth worst performing stock in the day. It lost 24% last quarter. Hey, that's crazy. United Tech is about to break itself into three terrific businesses, one for elevators, one for climate controls, one for aerospace. And I see, as I see it, the company's worth 30% more than it's currently selling for. But fair warning, I did say the same thing about Dow DuPont because of its breakup, and that's been a nightmare of underperformance thanks to the trade war and the endless amount of work that needs to be done to get the thing split up. This kind of thing is difficult, especially in the wake of a huge merger, whether it's Dow combining with DuPont or United Technologies with its recent acquisition of Rockwell Collins. But I am a stalwart in favor of this deal. Finally, here's one I never recommend on the show. There's Exxon. It's down 20%. If you told me a few months ago that we'd be able to buy one of the best, most conservatively managed companies on Earth with a 4.6% yield, I would have laughed in your face. But Exxon's now an accidentally high yielder in a group that can't be given away. I think oil's bottoming here. I said that at the 44 level. Remember, I did tell you it was topping in the 60s. And if that's the case, you can buy Exxon. Put it all together. And you can understand why we rocketed higher today. Many of these Dow stocks have already been humbled. Many of them are buys. Bottom line, every time I hear some commentator predict that 2019 will be a disaster, I think about how the end of 2018 was so horrific that it brought the averages down to pretty tempting levels, provided you're looking to own stocks for the long term and you're willing to be patient, like Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Maybe after today, we can finally accept that patience can be a virtue. Doug in Louisiana, Doug! Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I've been in the oil business now for 37 years, and I have a question about the midstream oil companies. Yeah. Uh, Why are their prices so depressed? 
Okay, um, they, uh, this is such a great question. I was trying to do a whole piece about it, but I just feel like that, one, people don't think that FERC has uh, made it so the uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has actually been very negative for them. Uh, it doesn't allow them to have big tax advantages. Second, there's a huge belief that the demand is slowing down. That demand is untrue, but there's not enough new money coming into the sector. And then finally, I've got to tell you, it's just so linked with oil, and oil is so hated that even though we need pipes more than ever coming out of the Permian, the group is despised, and a lot of the pipes are in the wrong place. So I've not been recommending any of the stocks. Can we go to Amy in Nevada, please? Amy. Hi, Jim. How are you? Thank you for taking my call today. Welcome. I really appreciate your advice. Thank I need you. your help. What do you need? I'm calling, I'm calling today. I have shares in both Microsoft and Apple. And with everything going on today, I'm thinking maybe I should switch everything to Microsoft. I want your advice on this. Uh, I, I'm not. Look, first of all, my Chapel Trust owns both Microsoft and Apple, and I think they can coexist. Second, Satya Nadella is doing a remarkable job at Microsoft. I think he's going to blow away the numbers. Third, Apple's so low. It's so low. And I know it can probably go like 15 points lower, maybe. But I got to tell you, I think that it showed tremendous panache in the stock today, that it bounced. I expect new sellers to come out. I expect more downgrades. But it's cheap, and now you're getting the service revenue stream for nothing. All right, 2018 was so horrific that it put some stocks at pretty tempting levels. Hey, if you own for the long, if you want to buy these for the long term, I think you're going to get some pretty neat opportunities. Tonight on Mad Money, I'm getting a sneak peek into one of the most essential conferences in the healthcare industry taking place next week in San Francisco. Before I head out to the West Coast, you don't want to miss Lisa Gill's preview. She's been there 19 years. Then is the Fed finally listening? Well, I'm going to give you my take on the chairman's comments in the morning. And all your calls, of course, rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Great day for the market. We've got some pure joy coming next week, though, because we're heading out to San Francisco for J.P. Morgan's 37th Annual Healthcare Conference. I'm so excited about this. It is a huge confab. We'll be speaking to all sorts of movers and shakers. I think it's especially important this year, because if you're worried about a slowing economy, the healthcare stocks are exactly what you want to be in. So let's check in with, and I usually don't have analysts on, you know that, Lisa Gill, J.P. Morgan's Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst, get a read on the industry and what's happening that we're going to see at next week's conference. Ms. Gill, welcome to Mad Money. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. I'm so excited to be here today. Okay, Lisa, uh, first of all, I need you to tell, I I can tell people it's a big conference. People say, oh, well, Kramer's given to hyperbole. This is, what, your 19th? Explain what happens at this one and why you have to be there. So it's my 19th conference. Um, There's almost 8,000 institutional investors that come to the conference every year. We've got 300 companies that will present. And there's a lot of news that happens, whether it's M&A activity that we saw this most recent this week. There'll be a lot of talk around that. We'll have great pricing panels around pharmaceutical pricing. We'll talk to the biggest companies on the street, really about what they're thinking about as we get into 2019. It seemed to me, and I was telling you, David Favor covers M&A, okay. we felt that Bristol-Myers felt compelled to announce its deal with Celgene ahead of this conference because you really can't go to the conference and kind of avoid the elephant in the room. Right. 
Well, it's interesting because either you announce it before our conference or you have the initial meetings that lead to the M&A at our conference. And so that's been the case for a number of years. And every time you read the proxy statement and they think, you know, they talk about where they started the discussion, right. it was at J.P. Morgan. Well, it does seem that, that this is a great form. I, I happen to think this Bristol deal is amazing because Bristol was just okay. Celgene was just okay. This could be one, one plus one is three. Am I being too bullish? Well, I mean, I don't follow the, I know, the pharma bio sector. But you, but you do recognize that big <laughs> yes. pharma has... Well, what I would tell you is that when you think about consolidation within healthcare, you look at on the services side things that I follow. Right. You look at Cigna and Express Scripts coming right. together, CBS and Aetna coming together, United Healthcare being as big as they are. You have to think that others have to come together as well because size matters. Right. And so you're going to see more of these companies, in my opinion, come together because they're going to need to have a broader portfolio when they go to those service companies. And I want to tell you, I mean, I have certain analysts who are go-to, and Lisa has always explained. She understands these, these businesses. Mm-hmm. You understand the distributors, mm-hmm. but you understand the models. And this CVS deal yeah. is one that is not being talked about or people feel it could be derailed by a judge. And yet I know you think it is the way of the future. Right. I do. I mean, I think that consumerism is where we're at. When you think about the biggest disruptors in healthcare, I know you've talked about Amazon and others. It's not going to be Amazon, in my opinion. It's really going to be where the consumer wants their services. It's going to be about value. It's going to be about quality. And it's going to be about convenience. And if you think about those that can deliver that, absolutely CVS can deliver those. You know, you think about the store locations. You think about the combination of pharmacy plus health plan now that they've bought Aetna. We really think we're at the corner of where healthcare is going to happen. But we're speaking of Walgreens, right, yeah. on yeah. Monday. Now, does Walgreens feel uh, threatened by what CVS Yeah, I mean, I think that Walgreens has taken a little bit of a different tactic in, in trying to go the route of JVs rather than making a big acquisition. I think that's the biggest question I get, Jim, and we'll hear from Stefano Pacina and Alec Gourlay at our right. conference next week. Who, by the way, don't speak anywhere else. Again, that's why I like this conference. <laughs> right, and we'll do a fireside chat with them, the only fireside chat in my universe. Um, but people really want to know what their strategy is. And, and you know, Stefano is a really well-known investor and has done well, but the stock hasn't done so well in the last oh. year and a half or so. And I think that investors would like to see them make an acquisition, do something big, maybe right. buy a health plan. Um, he feels that they're too expensive right now, but maybe you get an opportunity at some point. Uh, so in the meantime, he looks to do JVs, whether it's with LabCorp right. or United Healthcare or other players, Humana. There, there's a number that have been announced. All right. Well, one last question. Do you think? Do you expect anything blockbuster? And who are you looking for to really dazzle next week? Yeah. I mean, I, I look for CBS to dazzle a little okay. bit next week. I mean, it's our favorite name going into 2019. Right. And, and a few things I would just highlight there is, is one, they haven't really laid out the strategy completely now that they bought Aetna. So I think it's going to be a great opportunity for Larry to really lay this out. Larry Merlo. Um, and second, they're going to participate on a panel for us with Dave Ricks from Eli Lilly. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's going to be a great opportunity for them to talk about how pharma and these new entities can work more closely together to solve this problem around pharmaceutical pricing, access, quality, et cetera. Well, I want to congratulate you on the franchise you built. Can't wait to be there next week. It's the most exciting conference of the year. And we'll learn more and you'll help us learn. Absolutely. Okay? That's Lisa Gill, J.P. Morgan's Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst. I cannot wait till next week when we are at our 19th conference. First time for us. Mid Bunny's back after the break. It is time! It's time for the light round! Thank you so much, And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate down! Time for the light round! Let's start with Paul in California. Paul! Hello, Jim. How are you? I am good, Paul. How about you? 
great, fantastic. Qualcomm is my question, and I have a huge amount of it. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, look, it yields four. I think they have the money. I, they can't lose the lawsuit to Apple. The problem is, is that, man, you are in cell phone hell. And I don't want you there because that is the house of pain. So let's not, uh, it, as it rallies, and it can, I do a little trimming. How about we go to Dan in Illinois? Dan. Hi, Jim. I'm interested in Momo and your thoughts about trade tensions, iPhone issues, or exchange rates over the next six to 12 months for this stock. Momo? No, no. That is exactly the kind of stock I don't want you in. It's a Chinese stock. I mean, hey, listen, we're like having like a trade war to end all trade wars with the Chinese, and you want some Momo? I say, Ixnay, Momo. Let's go to Alex in California, please. Alex. Booyah, Dr. Kramer. Excellent, excellent. Booyah, creative. Go ahead. My, my question is on a stock that has been hovering around a 52-week high despite the market sell-off in the past two months. Dr. Kramer, what makes Sienna Corporation... Gary Smith used to come on the show, and I so enjoyed it. He's doing such a good job. Sienna is is really kicking butt here. I think that Gary should come back on. Sienna had a monster good quarter. I need to go to Arlene in Illinois. Arlene! Hi, Jim. I wanted to know what you thought about AbbVie. V. I think AbbVie has to do exactly what Bristol Myers did. They got to find a partner because they got too much money in one drug and Umira. Now, I will say this. AbbVie's a well-run company. Uh, so is Bristol, but they need to do a deal. I bet you we talk about that next week. I need, I'm need. i going out to San Francisco for the uh, JP Morgan conference. Let's go to Mike in the Illini. Mike, Mike, Mike. Hey, Jim. Uh, go first. Huh? Go Birds! Go Birds! Go Birds! Erickson. Huh? Erickson. should be kicking butt here, and they're not. They should be the big beneficiary of all the Chinese terminal Huawei, but they're not. And that's because they're not that good a company. Ooh, what a judgment. And that, ladies and gentlemen, good of the Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. I cannot overemphasize the importance of what Jay Powell, our valiant Fed chief, did today. It's not just that he suddenly embraced the policy of patience and data dependence after advocating the opposite for months. Maybe his heart grew two sizes over the holidays, like the Grinch, or he got some sort of visitation of the ghosts, you know, like Dickens. The timing of his speech was also huge. This morning, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester came on CNBC, and her interview was, let's say, a fiasco. She did the same two-faced dance, saying we're data-dependent, but we need one or two more rate hikes regardless of the data. How can you claim to be data-dependent if you've made up your mind before you see the data that you need one or two more rate hikes to get back to normal? Oh, and it begs the question, what the hell is normal anyway? I'll tell you what normal is. Normal is where the data says you should go. Normal is the natural progression of jobs being created without a lot of inflation. Normal is not a percent. It's not 3%. It's not 3.5. It's not 3.25 for that matter. That's the old-fashioned way of looking at things, and it's based on an incredibly outdated understanding of inflation. Why? Because these days our economy has a lot of natural armor against inflation that didn't exist a decade ago. We didn't have Walmart versus Amazon. 150 million people shop at Amazon at uh, Walmart. 100 million Prime Amazon. Those guys are going out all way to get you to pay less. Every device is also designed to lay people off. Every software program you have is designed to let companies hire fewer people because people are so expensive. Every invention of any note is about taking a job that's done by 10 people, making it so it's only two people and they can do it better. 
Now, the Fed doesn't understand this because they have a major aversion to inflation, and with good reason. If wages get too high and the banks don't want to lend, then we're going to have a pickup in unemployment. However, the, this morning's fabulous employment number tells us there are still enough jobs to entice people back in the labor force with only about 3% wage inflation. There's a rational way to put what happened today. It's amazing. At a moment like this, we want the Fed to take a bow, be patient, wait. See what that last rate hike brings. Because other than healthcare, I don't see much need for hiring in most major industries. Retail, restaurants, hospitality, travel, leisure, home building, manufacturing, assembly, uh, auto assembly, boxes, plastic, plywood, insulation, oil rigs, pipelines, you name it. Those are all businesses that we don't need more people in. In fact, the fear is that the Fed may have already tightened too much. That's a lot. Isn't that a big litany? Don't forget, the trade war with China could help slow the economy if we can't make a deal with the Chinese communists. You don't get weakness like we've had in the entire tech complex and the industrial complex if you're just worrying about American demand. Heck, Apple had fabulous numbers in America. The recent weakness in tech is all about what could happen if China doesn't play ball. How about the domestic side? Let's pick a bank. Let's pick a, hey, let's pick Key Corp, right, which is based in Cleveland, Loretta Mester's base of operations. How did it do last quarter? Well, it had $1.602 billion in revenues. Uh, how did it do the previous quarter? $1.647 billion in revenues. How did it do in lending? It had $44,749,000 in commercial industrial loans. Previous quarter, it was $45,030,000. Last I looked, the past was better than the present. No wonder Key Corp stock has fallen from $20 on the day the Powell declared war on inflation to as low as $13 in the Christmas massacre. Fortunately, it's bounced back to $15 and changed, but that's declined. Despite a huge boost in the dividend, is what made me worried about not waiting and not being patient before hiking. Oh, boy, would I love to ask Mester about those numbers. I mean, what would she say? Memo to pal. Keep listening. Be patient. Enjoy the employment gains. Let's keep the strength going by waiting a little, not being too judgmental about rate hikes like some of your colleagues. You will be known as the Fed chief who prolonged the expansion, not the one who ended it. That's a worthy legacy. That's one worth shooting for. Stick with Craig. I've been saying it ever since October 3rd. I thought the Fed was being too dogmatic and irrational and rash, lacking in prudence. Jay Powell proved to us today that he understands that perhaps he was a little bit too on autopilot and he's gotten a little bit more rational. And today you saw the results. The stock market went up. I am not against rate hikes. I am in favor of rate hikes when the economy is overheating. So, Jay. But today we saw what happens when it doesn't overheat and we create a lot of jobs. Like I said, as always, my marks are my promise I'll find just for you right here on my buddy. I'm Jim Kramer. See you Monday. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening what it all means get the truth not the spin the news with shepherd smith subscribe to the podcast today